0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. you know, by a happy coincidence and a subtle amount of engineering. Um, We've come in our series in the Gospel of John to John chapter 20 on the resurrection of Jesus, and it happened to fall on Easter. And So this week, I've been thinking a lot about this central question, what difference has Jesus made? And the way I've been reflecting on this question is I'm 51, and I was just thinking about it. What kind of person would I be, and what would my life look like and feel like if I had never met Jesus and been saved? I mean, I've been around Christians... So much of my life that every now and then I'll meet a person who I really like, I enjoy their company, but they don't know Jesus at all. And every now and then something comes up in conversation that just, it grabs me It says, wow, I am so different from this person. And not in an, a haughty way, a compare, I just go, wow, it's really, I forgot what it's like to grow old and not know Jesus at all. To have no place in my life where he is. Obviously, I'd be in a different line of work. I can't imagine wanting to do this if I were not a Christ follower, but I also have done a lot of reflecting this week on what kind of person I would be, just on a personal level. What my personality would be like, what kind of words I'd use, what things I'd enjoy. I'm not going to tell you all that came out of that reflection, but I can say this, I emerged from this week really thankful that when I was 16, going on 17, I met Jesus, and he has marked me, and I don't regret it at all. You know, the first half of John 20 introduces us to the fact of the empty tomb, and the the idea that that is a historical fact. That it's not something we conspired to propagate as a story, but that it really happened. That fact, that historicity matters a lot. Now, that doesn't seem to be what John is focused on, so I'm not going to focus on it this morning. The other Gospels do a little bit more justice to establishing the historicity of it. There are many really good arguments and evidences presented in favor of the historical fact of the resurrection. If you're interested in learning more about that, I would recommend to you Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, and I would also recommend Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. You know, whether you agree with their conclusions or not, they do a much better job than I could of just laying out the arguments, the evidences that favor the historical fact of the resurrection. That's not where we're going to park, but this morning we're going to go where John went and we're going to explore the profound impact the appearance of the risen Jesus had on the lives of the people that he encountered after he was risen from the dead. And for me, that's the more compelling part of it. I've looked enough at the historicity of it that I can accept on faith and as a thinking person that Jesus did rise from death. But what's far more compelling to me is, so what? Who really cares? Because many of you who grew up in the church have heard that story a lot, and to this day, you're not sure why it stirs people. It hasn't yet moved your heart. I want to try this morning to take you to the place where John's taking us to say it makes a profound difference in people's lives to know and to encounter Jesus who is risen. You know, after Jesus died, understandably, the disciples were a mess, a complete mess. And into that mess, Jesus rises from his grave and he appears bodily to many of them. And that physical encounter with the risen Christ made a huge difference for each of them personally. And in that encounter, he gave them a number of gifts, I want to explore some of the gifts which the risen Christ gave to the people who followed him, people he loved, and who loved him. And the first gift that he gave is the gift of peace. We're going to look today at John chapter 20 from verse 19 to 31, and rather than reading the whole thing through, I'm going to interact with parts of it. And I hope that will um, be helpful. I, I would rather prefer to have read the whole thing, but in the interest of time, I'm just going to approach it this way. Verses 19 to 20 say this. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. This is the evening of the first Easter. The evening of that day, when some women went to the tomb and found that it was empty. I really love that the first people to discover the empty tomb were women. That's awesome. I really believe Jesus allowed that to happen as a way of honoring the women who were part of his inner circle. And they ran and told the disciples what was happening. And the other disciples ran to discover for themselves. Now that evening, though they saw that the tomb was empty, they still did not know how it happened. Though Jesus had told them he'd come out of the grave, and I, can, I, I can understand their skepticism and doubt because people don't come out of graves all the time. I mean, if you have gone to a funeral for a loved one and someone said, hey, I saw Uncle John, I saw Grandpa walking around tonight, the first thought wouldn't be really where you would sit there and go, I don't know if that's true. You know, we have this idea that back in the old days, everyone believed everything. They were just a bunch of gullible Charlies walking around, going, hey, anything you tell me, I'll believe. That's not true. People were people over all time. And what never happens, they don't expect is going to happen. And so that evening, confused, afraid, feeling a little lost, they gathered together in a room, and they had locked the doors, because that's what people do when they're uncertain and afraid. And while they're gathered, who knows if they are talking, eating, praying, all of a sudden they look up, and there's Jesus standing in the room, and his first words to them are, Peace be with you. In Hebrew, those words are, Shalom Aleichem. Does that sound familiar to you? It was a very common Hebrew greeting, People would say, shalom aleichem, and the intended response, the expected response is, aleichem shalom. What it means is, peace be upon you, and the response is, and unto you be peace. It was a call and response greeting that every day took place a thousand times over the, all over the city. It has a parallel in Arabic, and that may be why it's more familiar to you. If you don't know Hebrew, you've probably heard these words, if not in the streets, or with a friend. You probably heard them in the movies. as alaykum. And what are you supposed to say? Wa alaykum That's the intended response in Arabic. It means exactly the same thing. Christians have the same thing. If you grew up in, in one of the mainline churches, or in a Catholic, or Anglican, or Episcopalian church, Methodist church, some Presbyterian churches, you probably experienced something called the passing of the peace. How many of you have experienced that in a church setting? The passing of the peace. So we, the, the idea is the priest or some leader would say, Peace be with you. And you would say back to that person, And to you. Or and with you. And then the people in the pews would look to each other and they would pass the peace to one another. It's a very beautiful way of greeting because what it's saying is the peace or the shalom which God describes in scripture, which we look forward to one day, I bless you with, I pray over you, I wish for you. Problem is, when you make something an everyday greeting, after a while, it starts to lose some of its force. I mean, this this powerful word, shalom unto you, became something like, hey, have a nice day. Hey, you too. Now, when you say that to people a hundred times a week, you're you're not actually going, I really mean it, man. Like, I want you. To have an awesome day. You just go, hey, have a nice day. You maybe don't even care if they have a nice day or a horrible day, but it's the right thing to say. And of course, they say back to you, hey, same to you. Right back at you. But that word shalom really carries a deep, powerful meaning. I think the best description I've read of this word shalom was presented in a book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be by Cornelius Plantinga. What what just happened? Guys, what's happening? Okay, there we go. All right. Did I do something? Okay. So, here's the meaning of shalom according to Dr. Plantinga. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his last name right, but I hope he'll forgive me. We call it peace. Peace but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Shalom describes what life felt like for that blink of an eye in the Garden of Eden when everything was finished and God said, man, it is good. It's exactly perfect. The way a chef says after tasting the sauce, oh man, that's just right. It's what I had in mind. It's how it's supposed to be. Many chefs don't even know if they're going to exactly reproduce their best iteration of a dish. Like, I don't know if I'm ever going to make the chicken this good again in my life. And I think that's a beautiful description of shalom. Is it's how God wanted existence, reality, and life to be to feel if all of it's working the way He intended. And how long did that last? Well, in your Bible it lasted like a page and a half maybe two pages. It didn't last long, but thank God we saw a picture of it. Shalom, peace, which we speak is life and reality the way God designed it, the way things are supposed to be. We're not supposed to be afraid. We're not supposed to be scarred and wounded. We're not supposed to be afraid for our lives walking down the street at night. You're not supposed to be worried that your mate is cheating on you. You're not supposed to be worried that your children are going to run away from home. None of that is how it's supposed to be. It's how it is because we've made a mess of everything. Sin has damaged the world. And into that, for thousands of years, millions of people spoke peace, knowing that every day we spoke it, it was against the whirlwind of brokenness and imperfection that the world is. It's meaningful, it's powerful to see that when Jesus visits his disciples after he's risen from the dead, his first words are not a standard everyday greeting, but he really meant what he was saying. Peace be unto you. When well, you couple that with his final words on the cross, it is finished. What he's saying is, up until now, peace was a future hope. It was something we wished for people, but maybe never really expected. But now, because what God sent me to do, I have done. And because I have beaten death and I am now physically here with you, raised to life, living again, I say to you, peace with God and peace within ourselves and even peace with other people and the world around us is actually possible because I'm risen. See, Jesus spoke peace, but he also brought peace. And the way he brought peace was he was actually in the room with them. He brought peace just by his presence, but more than that, the fact that he was alive now brought the peace of knowing that he's not just a really good teacher or an awesome example, but it proved he was God, that he had power and authority even over death. It proved that it established once and for all that everything he promised, he was able to deliver, that everything he would say could be trusted. into the fear that led these disciples to lock the doors in that room. That uncertainty. Jesus walks in and he speaks and he brings real peace. And with that word introduced a whole new era of history in which real peace with God and real peace within ourselves is actually possible and not just a wish we speak to others in greeting. Jesus went on to give him another gift. He gave him the gift of proof. I think Thomas gets a bad rap. And I will spend a little bit of time this morning defending my brother Thomas. You know, in the same way that Benedict Arnold is associated with what word? Traitor. Like, if you call someone a Benedict Arnold, you're not blessing them, right? Right? But I I kind of feel it's unfortunate that the Apostle Thomas is associated with what word? Doubt. Now, I'm not saying doubt is a bad thing in itself. It's a natural thing. It's, I think, in fact, an inescapable thing if you're awake and paying attention. The only way to never have doubts is to actually be drugged and hypnotized or lying. Doubt is a real part of being awake and thinking. You can't Avoid it. That doesn't mean it will always remain and be as strong as ever, but doubt is a part of belief. And I think Thomas gets a bad rap because it's as if everyone thinks Thomas was the only one who ever doubted the risen Christ. I like that Luke. He's my kind of guy. He's an OCD historian. He didn't just give you the Notes. He talked to people. He got exact wording as much as possible, and he recorded in a lot of detail. And look at Luke's account of what happened in that first visitation on the first Easter. While they were still talking about this, and this is the disciples on the road to Emmaus came running to the, the leaders of the church, of the movement, and said, hey, we just ran into Jesus on the road. It was the craziest thing. So, They report this, and the disciples are in this room talking about this. And while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So far in agreement. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. That's exactly what we'd be thinking. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself... Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Hey, do you have anything here to eat? Now, do you think it's because in the middle of all this, he's like, Actually, I'm starving. He wasn't just saying it because he was hungry. I don't doubt he was hungry but he wanted to make a further demonstration. Look at my wounds, but also ghosts don't eat. If a ghost eats a fish, the fish drops to the ground. You're like, see? Ghost? You're not here. So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. I think of a magician with a hoop and a levitated woman running the hoop. Why? See? No strings. The disciples were in so much doubt and unbelief that they got even more than just the hands and feet. They watched them eat food. I'm glad that's recorded for us because it would not be normal to just right away believe that someone you love who died is now walking around town. The most Logical explanation would be, your grief was so overwhelming, you conjured him up together in that room. Maybe it was too hot, maybe you were too tired or afraid, but you didn't really see him. And I love that all of the disciples shared that doubt. Luke's account records this and gives that further proof. So then a week later, Thomas is in the room with them, And he gets the exact same thing. Now, John carefully records that that first Easter, Thomas wasn't in the room with everybody else. What we know at least is that the other disciples, and by that that phrase, we can at least know he means that inner circle. Remember, there were 12, and then you take away Judas Iscariot, and then you add Matthias, who was later added, right? But you have these guys in the room, and Thomas was conspicuously missing. Now, the Bible is not clear on why Thomas wasn't with them that first Easter. And I don't want to be dogmatic about it because the Bible is not explicit. But I want to ask you to indulge me in a little bit of theorizing. And I want to get a clue as to what kind of man Thomas was because he does make two other appearances with speaking parts in the gospel narratives. Earlier in John 11, there's a, a setting where Jesus is hearing that his friend Lazarus is dead, and he says to his friends, guys, we're going back to Judea because I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if, my, if my chief, if my teacher said something like that, my focus would be on, you're going to do What? You're going to raise him from the dead. But where their focus was, was uh, Judea. They just tried to kill you like a week ago over there. Why would we go back to the very place where an attempt was made on your life? They were obviously worried for him, but I think they were also a little worried for themselves. We cannot go back to the place where people are trying to kill us. No matter how sad you are over your friend, and if he were sick, there's doctors there. But if he's dead, what are you really going to do for a dead man, Jesus? Let's leave it alone and stay here where it's safe. What Jesus clearly says to them in John 11, I'm going, guys. This is important, and it's for your sake I have to do this. You need to know who I am and what I'm capable of. So he sets his mind to go, and in John 11:16, so I don't know why it's not showing 11:16. There it goes. Okay. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with him. I think he was possessed by the spirit of Peter for a second there, and he opened his mouth before he opened his brain. Who knows? But what I think that reveals is that Thomas was a guy who was fiercely loyal to Jesus. What Thomas was really saying is, what are you guys talking about? Let's not go. If Jesus is going, and that's where he's going to die, I'm going with him. If he dies, we die. That's what it means to follow. I think for Thomas, the thing that drove him to join the movement was Jesus himself. For him, where Jesus was is where he needed to be. And if that meant walked into a place where death was almost certain, then so be it. Thomas opens his mouth one more time, that's recorded for us. Obviously, he didn't just talk twice. But he only talked twice that was worth recording. (laughs) I wonder what's going to be recorded in my history, the stuff I said that actually mattered, who knows. But in John 14, they're in the upper room sharing that last meal before all the horrible events would unfold. And in that dinner, Jesus says to his friends, guys, pretty soon I'm leaving. You can't come with me. Where I'm going, you cannot follow, but you know the way to where I'm going. I'm going to go there and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And one day you will come and join me. He's talking about heaven. He's talking about the fact that soon he will be lifted up and he would go to a place they can't follow him yet, but they would know the way and they would get there eventually. Thomas doesn't yet understand, neither do any of the others. They're not sure what he's talking about, and they clearly didn't know what he meant when he said, you know the way, you know where I'm talking about, you know what I'm saying. They're like, uh, no, we don't. Have you ever been there where your professor said to you, and you all, of course, know, and you're like, yeah, and you absolutely have no idea what he's talking about, but you don't want to look like the dummy in the room, so everyone else "Mm is like they know. Thomas goes, no, he's talking about leaving us, and I don't know where he's going. For Thomas, the idea of Jesus leaving and him not knowing how to follow was distressing. The other guys are nodding sagely like they have any clue what he's talking about. Thomas alone speaks up. And in John 14, 5, he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? What he's saying is, you're acting like we know the way, and if you leave us, we're going to all, these idiots are all nodding like they know, they don't know. And that means you're going to leave and I don't know how to get to you and all that matters is i got to know how to get to you. I'm not going to leave this one to chance because if you're really leaving and we don't know the road, you've got to make it clear. I've got to know how to stay with you. See, the picture that emerges in the Gospels of this man Thomas is not that he's this hyper-intellectual, doubting person, the skeptic, who's like, you better prove it beyond a shadow of doubt, or I refuse to believe. I, don't, I think it's the Western bias that's given us this picture of Thomas. The real picture of Thomas that emerges is, for him, this wasn't a movement about a cause, about fellowship, about any of that other stuff. It was primarily about Jesus. His entire loyalty and his confidence was rooted in this man, Jesus. And where Jesus was, was where he needed to be. And the Bible's not explicit on why Thomas wasn't there, but when I think about the man he was, I have a guess. I wonder if it wasn't this. That after Jesus died, Thomas was totally lost. Where do you go when the only person who is ever worth following is gone? The other disciples found some measure of comfort in staying together, huddled in a room. But I wonder if Thomas didn't see the point. Because for him, this was always about Jesus. You take Jesus away, and I think he was off trying to figure out what was going on. So in John 20, 25, it says, the other disciples after that first Easter encounter with the risen Christ look all over town. They find Thomas and go, hey, Thomas, we know you're really bummed, but listen, we just saw him. He let us touch his wounds. We even watched him eat fish. What kind of ghost eats fish? We think he's really risen. And it's in response to that testimony that Thomas says to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He wasn't like, yeah, whatever. I think what he's saying is, I am all in, but I'm not going to let you guys mess around with me unless I see for myself. What he's saying is, you got to see it. You got to touch him. I just want the same proof because everything rests on him. It matters to me that we are not following a memory, but that Jesus, the one I love, is actually here. This is not a statement of skepticism, but desperation. I need to see and touch for myself. I'm glad he said that because Jesus demands faith, but he does not demand blind faith. In the end, you can't get all the proof you need. Belief is still going to be a leap, but it doesn't have to be a blind leap. Jesus kindly meets all of them in their place of doubt. He's not angry about the doubt, but he says, it will be natural for you to need to know that I'm really here. And so a week later, maybe it was them saying, we really saw him, Thomas. And old Tommy says, all right, we'll see. Let me hang out with you all again and see what's going on. And a week later, in the same room, Jesus returns. And as if he was hearing their conversation, as if he could read Thomas's mind, he says, if you need to see and touch, have at it, Thomas. I don't want to read too much into the fact that he didn't eat another piece of fish. But it's as if, just seeing and hearing that invitation, the very next words to come out of Thomas's mouth are words of confession and recognition. My Lord, my God. I wish that the risen Christ would walk into this room in the flesh and invite each of us to do the exact same thing. For some of us, that would be an awfully great help to our doubt and our struggle with faith. I think it'd be easy to cross our arms in frustration and say, well, at least they got to do that. What about us? John finishes this chapter by telling us that he also meets us in our unbelief and our doubt. He doesn't give us the same exact physical experience these eyewitnesses had. But he gives us enough for us to believe. What John says is, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these, the things actually recorded here. What he's saying is not just written, but we wrote them because we were there. We saw them with our own eyes, and they're written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. What John is saying is we may not have the physical body of Jesus to touch and to see, but what we have recorded for us in the testimony of Scripture is enough to rest our faith in. Because these are not just words written by crafty authors, but written by the people, the men and women themselves, who stood there with their own eyes and saw and touched and now testify down through the ages. And because those who were right there saw and wrote, because their lives were so radically transformed by what they saw, Others heard and others believed. And we have not just testimony of the eyewitnesses in Scripture, but we have the testimony of thousands of people over the history of the church who have heard and read and believed and were so profoundly shaped by that faith that they gave their lives. Many martyrs died to bring us this information. Yeah. Yeah. This is not just stories, but they're stories written in blood and not just ink. People don't die for a fiction. They die if something was so profoundly true that they gave their lives over to it. You know, sometimes when we're in distress, we begin to doubt is God really there? And if he's there, is he really with me? In that doubt that is born out of distress, we will be tempted to look for God in the circumstances of our lives. Our souls cry out, God, are you real? Are you really there? And we begin to scan our lives saying, if you're really there, then my team's going to win. My parents will stop yelling at me. My marriage will get better my job will improve, I'll find this, I'll get that. We're looking for evidences of God's reality and his presence with us by looking at our lives. And even if you succeed in finding something that tells you he's there, if you look in your own life to establish whether God lives, that evidence will be very short-lasting. The place where faith is born is not by looking for the breadcrumbs in your own life but it begins where it always has begun in the resurrection of jesus and the absolute faith that jesus did not stay dead he rose and he's still alive he's still at the right hand of god and he's still in our hearts and he still works today when i read those posters and i compare them to the stories the human stories of these people at our church I don't know if many of you know how deeply those few words speak to what they've been through. How many tears and sleepless nights are behind those simple words on a poster? And 2,000 years after his first appearance, those posters are testimony that Jesus Christ is still risen. That's where we look for faith. That's where we look for proof of life. It's not in the ups and downs of our circumstances, but in this act of faith, he is risen. And if we believe that, we will have patience to wait for him to show up in our own lives. I'm going to run out of time, so I'm going to give you one last thing. He gives them the gift of purpose. Have you ever had your whole future ahead of you? and not a single clue what you're going to do. I'm not just talking about when you were 16 or 18. I felt exactly that when I was a young person. I was like, crud. (laughs) School's going to be over soon, and they're going to expect me to embark on my future. I don't know what that is. How many of you guys in youth group are stressed out right now? You don't have to raise your hand, but I know you're... That's very, very intimidating. When parents are like, what are you going to do with your future? I I don't know. That's so big. And maybe it's not just when you're young, but maybe when you lose something that you never thought you'd lose, something that defined you, gave you frame, you're like, what now? I feel like I'm in free fall. Like I don't know which way is up. Where do I go from here? I've got my whole future ahead of me, and I don't have a clue what I'm supposed to do and where I'm supposed to go. I think the disciples were in that place. They were lost and afraid, but they also were completely without purpose and direction. What do you truly live for? There are a million ways to answer that question. The world is full of options for something to give your life to, and without exception, Every one of you has an answer to that question right now. Maybe you're not fully sold on it, but right now you are living for something or someone. Make no mistake about it. And maybe for you, that thing you're living for is nothing. (laughs) I'm just living to exist like a sea cucumber in the ocean. That's my whole thing. It's what I do. I exist Every one of us has found an answer to that question and we're living it out right now. Do you have do you want to know and you're like I don't know if I do. You want to know how you find out? Do you have the courage to do this? I dare you. Ask the five people closest to you, what do you think I live for? What do you think makes me tick? What do you think wakes me up in the morning? What is it that gives me the greatest delight? I thought about doing it and I got scared. partly because professionally (laughs) I'm supposed to have a very clear answer and I'm not sure if my ego and my heart could sustain hearing other things. But you want to know what you're living for. That might be a start. When he visited them in that first Easter and those disciples were huddled in that room he spoke peace twice upon them and then he said this I'm not blessing you with peace so you could huddle safely in this room. I'm going to send you out now. And that sending out that mission is not a curse. It's not a sentence. It's a gift. You're sitting in this room not knowing what the rest of your life is supposed to be about. I'm telling you what it's for. Just as the Father sent me, I'm going to send you on the same mission I had. The gift I give you is not just peace and a growing certainty, but you're now going to share in the mission that defined my whole life while I was here. The Apostle Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, describes that mission, that calling for every Christ follower this way. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. This is our message to the world around us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You know what that message is saying in simple language? There is something that can be done about the evil inside of you. And the guilt and regret and the shame that that has produced. And there is something that can be done about the evil done to you by others because of the evil that lives in them. And furthermore, there is something that could be done about the evil you see everywhere you look in this world. Everywhere you look, there's evil. It could be so discouraging, defeating, you wonder if there's any way for the forces of good and light to win. And he says there is something that could be done even about the prevailing evil in all of creation. I think that's the heart of the message of reconciliation, is you think you have an unsolvable problem, and I'm telling you there's a place to put that. I had a wonderful lunch conversation about a month ago in Indonesia with a refugee from Afghanistan named Aziz. And I was basically just saying to him, tell me your story. And in the course of telling me his story, he said something that really arrested my attention. He said, where I come from in Afghanistan, I don't remember a single day that I wasn't afraid or nervous. Where I come from, there is so much hatred and so much anger and so much violence, it just creates a constant tension in your soul. And after he moved to Indonesia where he thought life was going to get worse and worse and worse, it actually started to get better and better. He met some Christians who began to embrace him. And he said, you are so different from where I came from. And he began to reflect on what was it about where I come from? Why were people all so much like that? And here's the conclusion he reached. He said, Dave, I think this is it. Where I come from, there is no concept of forgiveness. None. Every bad thing that is done has to be paid for. By retribution or by revenge. No wrong done against, you can just be forgiven. There's no such concept. That other person must pay or someone associated with them must pay. We cannot let anything go. And as you store these things up, it poisons your soul. You need to put it somewhere, and there's no place to put it but through anger and hatred and violence visited on others. As he was talking about that, I had this weird image. You you guys know by now how my brain works. I think in images and pictures, and here's the image I had. I thought of someone at a fancy party who throws up in his mouth. Did you, ever, you thought it was going to be a burp and all of a sudden you got all this foul stuff in your mouth. You'll never forget this. That I'm doing it for a, for a reason. <laughs> and you're holding it in your mouth, a mouthful of vomit, and you're stuck. Because at this fancy party, you first of all are stuck because you can't swallow back gross. And you can't just spit it out anywhere. That's also Gross. So you're stuck because there's no place to put it. It can't go back where it came from and you can't just spew it out on the world. So you hold it in your mouth and it's poisoning you and gagging you. And all you can think about is where am I going to put this? You're no longer in, you're no longer intrigued by the conversation. You're no longer looking forward to dinner or cocktail. All you can think about is I have to put this somewhere. I think that's the feeling without the gospel, to be a human being in this messed up world, is you've got this poison in your mouth, and you can't swallow it, and you can't just spit it out. Neither one solves the problem. So what do you do? Parents, let me quiz you. What do you do when your kid pukes? What's the first thing you instinctively do? It makes no logical sense. It's totally nasty. People without kids look at it and go, What does a parent immediately tell me? It is so disgusting, but we don't think twice about it, do we? Your child vomits, and what do you do? You say, don't keep that in here. There's a place for that. Why? Because you don't know what to do with it, but Daddy does. I can process this waste. I can put it somewhere where it will stop causing problems for all of us. I believe that's what our Heavenly Father did for us through what Jesus did. He stretched out his hand and said, that stuff, it's, it's poisoning you. You can't choke it back down. And you can't just spit it out on people. Where are you going to put all that? There's only one place to put it that doesn't add to the damage in this world. That's the gospel. It is our privilege to tell people, you don't have to walk around this party holding that garbage in your mouth. Spit it here. Your Father in heaven will take it from you, and you could be free. See, this gift of peace and the gift of proof, and very shortly after the gift of power that would come to the Holy Spirit, all those things were necessary to receive the gift of purpose. Because Jesus was risen and he showed himself to his friends, For the rest of their lives, they continued to follow him even when they could not see him. From that day forward, he never stopped being real, and he never stopped truly being alive. We don't have a biblical account of how each of these men's lives ended, but there is a faithful oral tradition that has been recorded also in written history that tell us through tradition how these men died. And tradition tells us that every single one of them, except John who's writing this, died a violent death while they were standing up telling others about Jesus. The Apostle Thomas is especially important in our church because we've had many friends who've come to us. Our brothers and sisters came to us from the Marthoma Church. The Marthoma Church, or Marthoma Church, is named after the Apostle Thomas because he journeyed as far as India. Some even say he went as far as Indonesia. He preached the gospel, and tradition tells us that as he preached the gospel there, some enemies of the cross drove a spear through his body and ended his life. Every single one of the apostles, with the exception of John, died a violent death, continuing to fulfill the purpose for which the risen Christ called them. Seeing him and knowing he lived profoundly changed their lives. And the invitation I have for you this morning is this. How is knowing that Jesus is not just a symbol or a historical figure, but he really lives? And right now, he says he wants to live with you and in you. What difference is that making in the way that you choose to live?